project that we hope will bear fruit for many years to come, feeding the hungry and also nourishing the neshama of our Jewish youth. There are so many. Ready. Ready. That's what it sounded like on Sunday at the official inauguration of Vancouver's new Jewish community garden. It was built on the roof of a two-story parking structure serving both the Vancouver Tamatora School and Congregation Beth Israel, a conservative synagogue. For the last couple of months, volunteers have been putting the garden together, schlepping wheelbarrows of dirt to fill up the containers where the plants and trees go, installing irrigation systems, shaping walking paths, and strategically placing small wooden tree stumps into the shape of a circle to create a space that will serve as an outdoor classroom, where kids will be encouraged to get their hands dirty and not get into trouble for it. Adults, too. Officials hope the Jewish Community Garden will produce enough food, fruit, and vegetables to supply 1,600 needy clients from Jewish Family Services. Some use the soup kitchen already or are homeless, or both. The Hebrew school students will get to learn about growing food and how it relates to poverty and hunger in their city. For Beth Israel's rabbi Jonathan Infeld, it is literally a dream come true because they've turned a barren parkade rooftop into the Garden of Eden. We also are taking the opportunity to grow some some things in the garden that could potentially be used for ritual purposes one day. Grapes or and spices for Havdalah. It's really a, it's a wonderful opportunity from a Jewish perspective as well. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Wednesday, May 31st, 2023. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, sponsored by Metropia. Vancouver's new garden isn't the first one in Canada's Jewish community. In Toronto, there's Shorish. They've been doing farming and beekeeping and backyard gardening programs for the past 14 years. The Mazon charity has helped fund a market garden in North Battleford, Saskatchewan, in memory of a Jewish man. In Winnipeg, Temple Shalom has a heart garden planted for reconciliation with First Nations, and I'm sure there are many more. But organizers in Vancouver insist their garden is unique because three Jewish community organizations actually came together to create it and run it. Joining me now from Vancouver are Rabbi Jonathan Infeld of Beth Israel Congregation, Emily Greenberg, she heads the VTT School, and Tanya DeMaio is Executive Director of Jewish Family Services. Well, congratulations. We're speaking after the big uh, r- the big uh, ribbon cutting. Was there a ribbon cutting? Literally? There was. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. All right. Why, doesn't, why don't you uh, walk me through what the sort of the yesterday's program was like and just describe what happened and anyone can start. Sure. So yesterday was really the culmination of several years of work. We've been working at this for four or five years. It's certainly been in our minds for longer uh, and yesterday was a celebration of all of the people who'd come together to make the garden possible. Uh, we were have been lent the land from the Diamond Foundation, uh, who had has this land and was willing to share it with us. And we're so fortunate to have them with us. We are also celebrating the seed uh, contributions of the Ronald S. Roberg Foundation and uh, Jewish Vancouver uh, Federation, as well as the Jewish Community Foundation, who all really helped us to bring this garden to fruition. And there were many other donors and uh, interested people there who were there to celebrate. All right. So what did you say, Rabbi? I guess you must have spoken. This is really a garden dedicated to helping people with food and financial insecurities and to teaching, teaching our children and to teaching adults about food, about uh, financial insecurity 
and about our ability to to help others. Not only our ability, but our obligation to do so. Okay, now you keep saying seed donors. You mean seeds, like actual seeds that go in the ground or seed money? As a matter of fact, we had both. <laughs> yeah, but West Coast Seeds has donated a lot of the seeds and the tools for the garden. But uh, when, when we were speaking about seed donors, it, it, it refers to people who gave us the seed money to really make this project a reality. Tanya, you were there yesterday. This is kind of, I, I'm, I've led to believe you're actually the gardener, the one who's the farmer, the one with all the actual thumbs that actually know what they're doing. Yes. So, so well, actually, I am a gardener. I can't, I can't say that I'm a professional one, but definitely one uh, who grew up with, uh, with a lot of uh, land around and, um, and really enjoy uh, growing food and seeing uh, food, uh, you know, come out of really that one small seed. And uh, Jeff has has, um, uh, really been working on the food security uh, initiatives for many years. So the garden was uh, very important uh, for many reasons, Uh, connecting with local food, uh, connecting with knowledge, uh, connecting different generations of people as well. Okay, I want to ask the rabbi for a second. So this is a Jewish community garden. What religious or halachic kind of rules apply, such as, I don't know, Shemitah eventually, or, you know what I mean, tithing, things like that? So, you know, it's an interesting question. We actually have discussed in the process of the building of the garden. But Shemitah, of course, itself doesn't actually apply to anything outside the land of Israel. So those concepts of Shemitah and Yovel are really inspirations for the garden more than anything else, and an opportunity to talk and to teach about Shemitah and Yovel. What we do have in the garden are actual peya beds, though. One is supposed to keep the four corners of their field to allow that those who have food insecurity to be able to come and to take from those four corners. And we actually have in the four corners in the midst of the of the garden, there actually have we we not only have peya beds. But uh, those beds were planted yesterday by the people who are in attendance. And so that's really the halachic import of the garden. Rabbi, they did it on Shavuot. Well, the weekend of Shavuot. The weekend, right. It was the day after Shavuot. You know, I, I actually spoke about, you asked me about what I spoke about. I connected it to the Torah reading from Shavuot, and, uh, and which is why we did it when we did it. The sun was out. The temperature was perfect. But the fact that it came just the day after Shavuot which is, of course, uh, just uh, one of the holidays of the Shalash Regulim, which evolves and revolves around the agricultural cycle of the land of Israel and a harvest holiday. It, it could not have been better and a reminder of the fact that we as, as human beings, um, as the Torah says, we don't live by bread alone, but uh, we also need bread in order to be able to study Torah, in order to be able to live a spiritual life. We need to have the basic physical sustenance no matter who we are, how, um, where we are financially. And uh, this is a reminder of, of from where our food comes for us and, and how we can help those who have, who have need. Is the synagogue going to be using some of the food for their catering, what have you, or is it only going to needy clients, like not you, your three organizations? The people who are growing the food will have access to it. But from the synagogue perspective, we don't really plan on using it for our catering, but we do plan on using it for our for two programs that we do, one being the, the veggie club, in which once a month we create soup that we give to every client at the Jewish Food Bank. And once a month we have something called the One Heart Dinner, in which we also 
um, create a dinner at the synagogue for people with with uh, fin- with housing and food insecurity. That will be our primary purpose of the use from the synagogue perspective. And I know that JFS and, and VTT have, have different needs for it as well. Let's talk numbers. How many people uh, will benefit from this in the future? Yeah, so from our perspective, we have about 1,600 people who will receive food uh, monthly through a few different programs. So we do have a, a food bank that we call a grocery uh, program. Uh, we have a meal program uh, for seniors and people with disabilities. Uh, we also have um, a gift uh, voucher program, and then we do have a community kitchens uh, as well, uh, as well as subsidized markets. So we do have a, quite a few different initiatives happening at JFS. So this food will be mostly going to uh, to the meal program, and some of that probably to the food bank. Um, but the big part will be really building the programming and uh, education around uh, growing food and uh, gardening and uh, for people who do come to the garden, be able to uh, to use that food as well. Are these all Jewish clients or not necessarily? No, not necessarily. So um, our programs support Jewish and non-Jewish community as well. So not all of the clients are Jewish. Okay, and Emily, did you want to weigh in on who's getting this from your side? Sure. So, uh, with you know, our purpose really is to teach children about both the life cycle and also the Jewish values as far as the environment and and taking care of the land and uh, being shomrei adama, guardians of the earth. Um, but the whole notion of understanding where your food comes from, I think, helps way down the line as far as you know, also cherishing what you have, appreciating it, but not wasting it. Um, you know, this whole notion of teaching a man to fish, and I know Shoresh believes in that as well, as opposed to giving them the fish, that, that old proverb. And that's what we, we really want to teach our children, that we want them to understand from seed to mouth, what does that process look like? Um, they will be working on, uh, we, we have a very strong volunteer and service initiative here, and they will be working on different things to benefit those in need. We have quite a few students who themselves experience need and uh, are also JFS clients. So there's a lot of shared uh, clientele there, and we're, we're excited to be able to have different endeavors to help them. We've already had more than 900 people in the garden helping to build it, helping to move dirt, helping to plant and construct various things. And I think that sense of coming together and sharing the communities, bringing communities from you know different areas of the Vancouver Jewish community together, especially with the JFS clients, is so rich for all of them in that it will really help them understand the importance of, of connecting and giving back. What did you plant so far? I can take this one if that's okay. Uh, we have all sorts of different kinds of lettuce uh, and uh, and things that are, of course, edible. Uh, we have many different kinds of berries uh, and fruit trees. Uh, there will be apples uh, galore, as we want them to, as part of our Rosh Hashanah celebrations. Uh, we also have a perennial bed uh, where we'll be able to have flowers. We'll be making Shabbat bouquets, etc. from there. Um, and eventually, we hope to have... Uh, bumblebees coming in uh, to the area, and we might even have a, a kind of a, a, a bee center. We have to be thoughtful about that as we bring it in, just because of the the kids and the community members coming in. So we want to make sure it's safe. Actually, I already saw some uh, bees and whatnot flying around the vegetables that are already blooming and growing yesterday. Emily, it was beautiful. Now you mentioned that this is something you think is unique in Canada. 
I know that, for example, I mentioned before we started taping Shoresh in Toronto has that been doing this work for at least a decade that I'm aware of, if not longer. What's unique about this one in, in the country and one of only a handful in North America is this is an integration of our garden as an integration of vegetables and fruit growing with class outdoor classroom space, eventually a, um, a greenhouse as well and multiple places for programming in order to learn about environment and food security. And there's a, an, a beautiful integration. And this is also a joint project of Talmud Torah, of Jewish Family Services, and of Beth Israel. So nothing like that actually exists in Canada. And there's only a few places like this in the United States. Um, just to add a couple of things to what uh, Rabbi Infeld was uh, talking about. So our garden is actually on a, it's a roof, uh, rooftop garden. So which, uh, there are other gardens or rooftop gardens, but not community gardens. So that's, uh, that's actually pretty unique. So it's a finite space. You can't expand it, like dig an extra row. That's it, right? Correct. It's the fine space. Uh, it is uh, set up in such a way, and and it's unique in 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 that um, in that sense as well, uh, because it actually opens up a lot of much larger conversations when it comes to utilization of the rooftop spaces for community use uh, as well. What are the dangers, though, or the challenges you had to navigate because of the weight of the earth on the roof with the structure? We had to speak to structural engineers, make sure that it was okay. This particular building was built to actually potentially have a future building on top of it if the Jewish community ever needed to do that. You know, certainly it had been kind of sitting fallow and not really doing anything, as many rooftops are. Um, the only time it had been used in history was actually by VTT when we were in the process of doing a new build. Uh, so uh, the school built a new part of the building uh, in 2016, and the kids would go have recess there because that was the only space we had. It was also used a little bit in COVID when kids, we were trying to have children eat outside as much as possible. But it, it really looked like we called it, um, you know, with love, we called it the prison yard because that's kind of what it looked like, uh, really with pea gravel and high fences all around. So it's it's just completely been converted into a magical oasis from from that, from those days. Many community gardens that I'm familiar with have people coming at all hours of the day, access uh, to water it. But because it's on... Jewish property and with the holidays and maybe you're not allowed to work in a garden on Shabbat, you still have to water and take care. How does that work? How do you navigate that? There won't be any work on Shabbat. There'll be pro there'll be, we'll have programs on Shabbat and Chagim, but there will be no work. Um, but Tanya, if you want to explain the rest. Yeah, so we uh, we build the irrigation system so that uh, supports uh, watering the plants uh, during the times that we are not there. How are you protecting it from like predators, birds? crows rabbits can't get up there i guess but birds could so and they have been uh but they you know i think that that's really going to be the expertise of creating this harmonious space that can can you know, also manage to control the the critters that may want to come in but also you know uh, make sure that they don't destroy anything we have so we're really going to count on our garden coordinator to to help us with that and use her expertise to manage the pests which we know are going to very much enjoy our garden just as much as we will <laughs> You have to build a, uh, a, a golem, scarecrow. <laughs> I'm sure the kids will love that, right? I want to come and help too. <laughs> 
And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. Today's listener shout-out goes to Mark Kingstone in Toronto. If you want to see the Vancouver Jewish Community Garden, just go to the link in our show notes and you can watch the video on how they built it. And we'll end the show with our condolences going out to the family of Lorne Weiner, the longtime Toronto real estate agent, was a Second World War veteran. And I say long time because Lorne died Monday at the age of 105. He was a sergeant in the Royal Canadian Artillery and he helped liberate France. In an interview with me a couple of years ago, he told me how he first encountered some Jewish survivors in 1944 as his men were attending a memorial service in Normandy for the troops who had fallen in the D-Day landings. Thanks for listening to the CJN Daily. So here are all these armed troops coming in for the Jewish cemetery, and the service started. Five minutes into the service, we began to hear a moaning sound. And we looked around in the shadows where a couple of dozen Jewish survivors they had been hidden for five years, were still alive after the bombing of Khan itself, which is which was a something which is a victory of itself. They looked like wraiths, like ghosts, standing against the wall there, and they were moaning, partly in elation. It was a mix of, of, of relief for them to see all these armed Jewish soldiers that it, it remained with me for many years. I couldn't tell the story without tears coming in my eyes. 